Hey guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to this week's No Limits, the Thriller Podcast. How you doing this week, Mike? Chris, you know I'm doing well down here in Myrtle Beach. Getting my golfing in. Not a whole lot of beach time. And of course, I got to make some time to podcast with you, my buddy. Yep, yeah. We haven't, um, haven't potted in a couple of weeks. We... We worked a lot at the beginning of the month, or like the end of March, and we were able to bank up a couple episodes, took a little bit of a break. It's kind of nice, and I have to say, happy belated birthday to you, Mike. Uh, um, thank you. Thank you. April is both of our birthday months. It's a special month here on the No Limits podcast, and dude, I am, I am pumped to talk to you today about golf. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> about-, <laughs> about the Masters. Good job, about John the Rom. Masters. Like, actually, April April's an amazing month. Not only are both me and Mike born, we get the Masters. It's the beginning of spring. Oh. Mike's down here golfing thirty six <laughs> holes in one day. I'm I'm freaking jealous. Spring he's break, getting ready right? to sand. He's getting ready to sandbag our <laughs> our Penn National trip in in July. TBD to for we're gonna do a, we're gonna do a whole live pod that entire weekend. I I, we gotta I, do I feel it. it. Got to do it. Got to do it. Yeah, we'll be together the whole weekend. But this month is pub month for the new author we're going to be covering on the Mitch Rapp podcast, Don Bentley. Yes. Forgotten War. Is that the new one coming out? And by the time you're hearing this, it might be out or just about be coming out. And correct me if I'm wrong, that's book four in the Matt Drake series. Correct. Yeah. So we're actually going to do something interesting here. We're going to keep it to a normal, no limits, thriller podcast book review episode for Without Sanction by Don Bentley, the first Don Bentley book, and the first Matt Drake book. And we're going to actually save a little bit of our conversations of how we see this book fitting in some of the the character building, the universe building, how that fits into a potential Mitch Rapp uh, universe. So, of course, they're two very separate things, but we're going to record a separate discussion next week for the Mitch Rapp podcast, where Chris and I kind of look for parallels or at least influences that Vince Flynn and that series may have had on Don Bentley's first book, because there's clearly influences. There's lots of things being done here. I'm excited that, you know, thematic things and stylistic things that could be brought into a Mitch Rapp story that I'd be really excited for. And so I think that'll be a fun separate thing to do. Let's let this book stand on its own today with a review and discussion episode. But I'm definitely chomping at the bit to see if you caught anything that might really align with what we're looking for Don to do moving forward after Code Red. Yeah, and I I um I couldn't help myself like as I'm listening, as I'm reading, you know, thinking about, you know, how how he would write this in a Mitrap universe or like insert character X here for right. this character, you know, but then I found myself and I think we're going to get into it in terms of the progression of this book. You know, I love doing first book and I love doing first book and second book. And I, I would really, I, I think, you know, obviously we're, we're chugging along with our second series in Scott Harvath, which we're loving, but I would love to now dive since we we're kind of caught up, you know, we have a couple of new releases we're going to want to touch in the, over the next couple of months, but I would love to continue doing this series. We have, you know, a solid four book arc we yeah. can go into and see that first book to second book progression. 
But it's always interesting to me that the first book, like, what is the author going to do? How much are they going to jam pack into this? And I really right. think we're going to get into, like, <laughs> there's a lot in this novel. Yeah. And I, I'm starting to understand why, you know, like, mm-hmm. you want to tell a story. You don't know when you're writing these probably like are you are you ever going to get a chance you know to to do this again we 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 saw this with connor right like and we even brought it up like in terms of you know putting different things little tidbits and you know it's like i don't know if i'm ever going to get a chance to write something else and i wanted to say this thing so i want i wanted to put this scene in my novel so i i did it this definitely had those things but and i, I do think i'm i'm now i'm now a little bit more i rest assured yes that Don is taking over. Like I was a little bit worried because I, I hadn't, I didn't know who he was. I didn't had read a book yet. But now that I've read this first novel, I'm, I, I feel better about myself, <laughs> and and the state of the Mitrap universe. Yeah, hundred percent with you. I can't agree more. I don't think I was ever ambivalent. I wasn't worried in any way. But in the back of my mind, sure. I, I was like, I don't know who this is. I I've heard all the news. I've read the bios. I've heard interviews. But I have not read his written work yet. So this was a big opportunity for me to kind of come into it. Actually, I had two mindsets. One was I want to let this book stand on its own and read it as it is. I want to look for these connections. But another thing is it's it's rather simple. And I say that in a good way because I feel like Kyle, he swung for the fences, as we've said many times, and he let his imagination run wild. And, man, that was just a oh, whole lot of fun like everything we did with mitch going to these you know countries he's never been to before dealing with these threats he's never dealt with before and we just had him in new situations i feel like don really streamlined this book it was a very almost straightforward story it it didn't get overly complex uh it you didn't lose the reader in mindless rabbit holes and side quests it kept to the story it had a tight plot really tight pacing great action sequence pacing and so not not that i don't like what kyle did in the series because we're over the moon about it but i do think there's a chance for simplicity here to tell a tight concise mitrap story in the mitrap universe that doesn't necessarily go into this wild imagination and i really thought don's book here was very grounded it's essentially one ranger dealing with his personal demons, but also feeling the pressure to save another fellow ranger because no one will be left behind. And that that's a very simple story, yet the way he fleshed it out was just knockout. And so I just, I like the, the tight, uh, simplistic storytelling. And I say simplistic in a very good way. Yeah, no. And I, I think, you know, this book was pretty well received. It's got a 4.2 on Goodreads, 4.4 on Amazon. Um, you know, on the cover, we get a quote from Lee Child, sensationally good, you mm-hmm. know, like you said, I, I think it's, it's very tight. It's, it tells an interest, you know, we, I, and I guess I shouldn't claim to be an expert, you know, I've, you're, you're more of an expert in this, uh, genre than me, but we haven't had many that have, you know, DIA as the focus. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's something new to me. An army ranger. Oftentimes, we, we've dealt a lot with Navy SEALs uh, or CIA operatives. Um, this you can tell that uh, you know Don, hailing from the army, has great respect for you know these these players, these operatives. I think during the once we got into Syria, 
mm-hmm. and we're getting into mission mission preparation, mission action scenes. It was it was freaking humming, man. That's that's it, where it, it took was, off. It was it was so crisp, Dude. so clean. I'm reading it, and I'm I wanted to text you, but I didn't. I wanted to like save it for the pod too. Just like this is freaking awesome. <laughs> you know the, the, the whole hey the whole hey ho jump sequence oh. and going into that description and the the pre flight check. I've never been yes. more intrigued or like uh, you know enthused about everything that was going on. Yeah. The minutia. You know, that that was exactly, you know, I, I cared about it. I appreciated it. And it it was the t- that attention to detail that that really really sung that Don Don put here. I'll be honest, I I, I don't think the book really started for me until that hey ho jump and him embedded in Syria. The minute that happened to me, it became a different book and I became a different reader. I unfortunately, and right. I'll admit to the people, I, I started the book in the first third or so. I wouldn't say down on it, but I was, I was okay, I see what he's doing with the PTSD. I kind of like that angle. Not sure I'm down with the, the writing just yet. I liked what he was doing in the White House. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the characters and the chief of staff, Peter Redman. I'm like, yeah, I could see where you're going with this guy's conflicted interest and his need to get his presidential candidate elected. That's going to trump everything. And I was even questioning the whole first person perspective. I think that's an elephant in the room Mm. we got to talk about. At first, I wasn't sure how I felt jumping back from Matt Drake were in his shoes, in his mind, first person storytelling. Then we go to the White House and it's third person, but with a bias. We're clearly in like Peter's Mm. shoes. It's not first person, but we're being led to believe that Beverly, the the DCI, the CIA director, she's like, she's the bad actor. And I, I don't know if I can truly believe everything being said about her because it's coming from this Peter character. And I still don't know if I'm supposed to like him. So I just thought all those different strains were so different from what I was used to. I didn't feel settled in. I didn't feel comfortable reading this book. Like I pick up a Brad Thor novel. I know what I'm getting. I'm all in. This one, I... I would say it was a it was a rocky road, you know, um, kind of mirroring what Matt Drake's going through with his recovery. I, I'm kind of like, I don't know how I feel about this. I have questions. I'm uncertain about it. A little anxious because now I'm starting to say, Don doing Mitch Rapp. I'm like, I hope he saves it for me. And then, boom, you embed that man, Matt Drake, in Syria. I'm all for the first perspective, the first person narrative. The second he's on the ground operating, trying to link up with his asset, Einstein, being driven by this local ISIS recruit, an American kid turned extremist. The second I'm seeing all that through an operator's eyes, it's the coolest reading experience ever. And for some reason, that made me like the White House stuff better. I started liking the political maneuvering scenes even more. Then I was I felt more comfortable going through what Matt Drake was going through with uh, the the regrets that he has in his mind. I don't know why something switched halfway through this book when he was in operation mode that I was fully clicked in. And to me, that's when the book got started. Yeah, no, I I think it just, you're right. I think it took a little bit of adjustment. We've, we haven't currently on this pod covered a book that does first person, but this is like almost like mixed first person, right? You're saying because he writes clearly as first person when we're anytime we're with Drake. But the only other time we're not with Drake is when we're with Peter, pretty much. Like right. I, 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 and now that you're saying it, I don't think we're ever 
if we're not with Matt, we're never not with Peter. And that's what I meant by simplistic. It's only those two storytelling yeah. devices side by side. Yeah, exactly. We're, we don't we don't see you we know, don't deviate a, a scene with Frodo. Exactly. Uh, we don't we don't we don't see a scene with you know with Beverly alone, right? Exactly. So the fact the fact that we don't go first person, you know, thinking the, the way he writes it, it's it's third person with. Uh, Peter, but first person with Matt, it, I, I feel like it's kind of jarring a little yes, bit, you know? Right. And I think it just took a little bit of time to get used to. Because the only other time that I've read in this genre, a first person novel, is uh, Lee Child, actually. Mm-hmm. He he just switches. Uh, I've, I've read probably like 15 of his uh, Reacher novels. I've, I've skipped around. And it'll just be like, all right, this one I'm going to do first person. And this one I'm going to, you know, he'll do a run of a couple that are third person. But when it's first person, it's truly first person. So, mm-hmm. like, you're not going to get any sort of cut scene to where, you know, the reader finds out who the actual killer is. But, you know, Reacher doesn't know. You are literally, you know as much as Reacher knows as the reader, which is kind of cool. But but here, I guess, like, the jumping back and forth was kind of throwing me off a little bit. Until Syria. Yeah, and I think that's because we spent so many chapters and such a long amount of time with Matt. You know, it, it we're we're used to these novels where it's like cut back and forth, back and forth. You know, like what's going on in Washington, what's going on in Syria, right? And we just like dug in with Syria, and it just became its own thing. It was almost theatrical in a sense. Like I was visualizing these things as a movie and how how it would actually be told. Yeah. Um. On on like a screen, and it and it may be more engaged. Yeah. And like you said, like the, the book started for me once we were boots on the ground in yeah. Syria, and I think that was the main like reason why I wasn't like locked in in the beginning. Uh, agreed. And it was like a a, fl- a switch being flipped. Thinking of a movie though, this just came to me. Not to jump ahead in the plot because we we were gonna get there when that Russian helicopter comes down on him. And he's like hiding in that shack and eventually gets the tractor. Right, right, right. Did right. you think of Top Gun Maverick when that chopper just descends yes. and turns and is looking right at you? I mean, we're not in the woods, right? We're in or the the Siberian woods or whatever. We're in the we're in the deserts of Syria. But man, I, I just I was picturing a scene just like that with this dude who just para jumped, was knocked out, broke his ankle, is hobbling around, and gets captured by ISIS. Like Oh, man, once all that was going down, this book just took off. All right. I mean, you want to give us the plot summary? We can jump right into this thing. Yeah. So on uh, on Goodreads, we get, a- after surviving a clandestine operation that went tragically wrong, Matt Drape escaped Syria with his life, but little less else. Now to save the life of another, he must return to Syria confront his biggest failure in a stunning thriller from the New York Times bestselling author of Tom Clancy's Acquired Target and Hostile Intent, Don Bentley. Defense intelligence agents operative Matt Drake broke a promise, a promise that cost three people their lives and crippled his best friend. Three months later, he's paralyzed by a survivor's guilt and haunted by memories of the fallen. Matt may have left Syria, but Syria hasn't left him. In the mists of his self-imposed exile, Matt is dragged back into the world of espionage and assets that he tried to forget. 
A Pakistani scientist working for an ISIS splinter cell has created a terrifying weapon of mass destruction. The scientist offers to defect with the weapon, but he trusts just one man to bring him out of Syria alive, Matt Drake. It's a suicide mission, one man against an army of terrorists. Still, with the stakes this high, Matt has no choice but to try. He's going in on high alert, but he's blind to his greatest vulnerabilities. His most dangerous enemy is closer to home. Not on the battlefield, but in the Oval Office. You know, I like that dramatic flair because Peter is definitely a nemesis here. But I think his biggest enemy is himself and his own regrets. Yeah, no. <laughs> to me, yeah. that's, that's a through line of the book that's really done well to jump to the ending, he finds strength to basically fight back and to not let his hope die. And his only strength is in forgiving himself for this op gone wrong in the past. One that truly wasn't even his fault, but he failed to come through on a promise due to the political hierarchy and military hierarchy. And I feel like he had to fight himself to let that go. It affected his family, his relationships. And to prove that, I captured a lot of it in my limerick. Did you know there once was a man named Drake saving a fellow ranger his stake? To Syria he will go with a damaged ego, forgiving past regrets he must shake. Damn, Mike, you you are good. You came up with that in pre-pod. I was like, do you have a limerick? He's like, nope. I was like, I got to have one. Yeah. That's so good to come up with that quickly, dude. I was like, I'm not doing Don Dirty here. Our first coverage of his book. I'm, I'm giving him a limerick I'm proud of. And that's a 30-second banger right there, let me tell you. That's a good one. That's a good one. No, so I think it's – this book is interesting in the sense that not only was I sort of jolted by the first person, the beginning is very confusing, right? We're, we're sort of like yes. put in media res with Matt Drake, you know, in – going through some PTSD things, which we find out later are not PTSD things, but actually like, you know, effects of, of an attack, which, you know, is freaking crazy when you think about it. In an airport, seeing dead people, and, you know, this op gone wrong that we don't actually find out until, I don't know, a solid fifth through the novel, where yeah, all of a sudden, later. boom, we get a very long flashback chapter and, and we, we see that, you know, the entire I, I didn't think we were actually gonna get that. I thought we I just, it was gonna be told out in, in bits and pieces. Yeah. But then all of a sudden he just literally cuts. I guess that that's when he's traveling to Syria, right? It, they mm -hmm. it does like a whole flashback and reminiscence of, of this op gone wrong. But yeah, I was sort of like confused about like who is this guy? why, why is he seeing these dead people? Why, right. why is he running away from his wife? Who are these FBI agents here to you know right. to recruit him? You know, it just it was very interesting to be place us, you know, in the middle of this thing. I guess because also the first chapter, right, is his asset. You know, the the whole clicking, you know, pulling that trigger. So we see the very beginning of the op gone wrong. Great and, scene. And what the ultimate flashback will be. Yes, and some of this writing is very good. So like I'm, I'm like. I'm intrigued because I'm obviously analyzing this guy who's going to be writing my my favorite series ever, <laughs> and then <laughs> I've tried to pull pull all these parallels, and and then I'm also like confused about like who's this guy? I got I got to figure out who Matt Drake is, but then once once I understood who he was, you know the picture is starting to get a little bit clearer. Yeah, you know 
I liked I liked this figure metric. I thought he was interesting. He had a lot of you know baggage, a lot of interesting tidbits. You know, being a full character. I don't know. What did you think of metric as a protagonist? I agree with your take a hundred percent. I wasn't entirely sure how I, I feel about him. You know, right off the bat. I identify he's going through these struggles, but I'm a little confused when he sees the dead faces instead of his wife's face and how he's running from all that. I, I do like these little nuggets, like you said, of you know playing the music, right? He, he Strumming the guitar is how he gets out of all this and overcomes it and can right. kind of store it away and how music is important to him. And even the opening conversation with that old veteran, Jeremiah, the shoe shiner at the airport. I love some of the dialogue and I really like it, but I'm still in my mind like, who is he? Can he operate? How do I trust that he's going to do some badass things? You know, like I need to see that before I can totally buy into who he is. And again, it comes out in the planning for the Siri op. Once we get the backstory filled in that connects to that opening chapter, because I really, really like the opening chapter of that Syrian family trying to activate the beacon and it's in the coffee pot in the cabinet and he activates it the last second. And so I'm kind of like, okay, cool. Matt Drake's going to come save this dude. Like that's how Matt Drake's going to prove to me, you know, he's going to send in the cavalry. He's going to be that guy. We need him to be. Yet he wasn't, you know, that didn't come through his, his, his uh, right. team, the, the uh, QRF team that was on standby that he hoped would be sent in to save his asset. And he promised him, you know, you put that beacon on, we'll be there in a matter of minutes. I promise you this. Yet the political powers that be pulled the op, didn't want to get us more embedded in the region, didn't want to risk our people. And Matt left his asset high and dry. And, you know, he lost his family for it and lost a little girl, a beer that he loves. As those things got filled in, I had such a better picture of who Matt Drake was and what he was going through. Then I was bought in to him not only having to go back into the game, you know, when he gets that call from James Glass and when he talks to Frodo, right. you know, all those things meant so much more to me, knowing how that op went wrong. Then I identified with Drake and his journey to overcome that. And, and just listen to a couple of these quotes. I think these quotes, they're very quick, very quippy. There's a lot of good writing here that's packed into very small passages. For example, quote, Everyone paid a staggering price for my failure. Everyone but me. And things like that are through lines through the story that this is what the man's dealing with, even though he's getting pulled back into the game. Then on top of that, we know he's a badass operator because he's dropping lines like this, quote, death and I were old friends. Or uh, one right. time when uh, he's in a shootout and uh, he eventually gets to Einstein and he extracts Einstein, they're in the car. And Einstein goes, are you threatening me? He goes, I don't threaten, I inform. You know, like little nuggets like that are telling me Matt Drake is the operator I need him to be. His personal demons are kind of holding him back from being fully the operator he needs to be. And I'm so glad the book came to a place where he was able to overcome those things. And, you know, like a, any ranger, just accomplish the mission, get the job done. Right. Yeah. What did you think about, you know, this sort of, Oftentimes we see these dueling storylines. How did you feel about, did juxtapose the beginning introduction of Matt Drake to the beginning introduction of, um, I guess, our quote-unquote political foes? 
you know, we can we're, eventually we're going to get into who the bad guys are. But would you classify a Peter and a president, the president, as the bad guys of this story? I, I think we have to put, parse this apart, and I think uh, maybe this is a kind of Flynnian here because you know, good old Flynnian either situation. Room, it's very, very Flynnian, right? White House Counsel, or even on the Capitol Hill. Not every person there is black and white, good and bad. Everyone's got some gray zone. Everyone's got some demons. And Rap's got to, you know, put them front and center. Rap's got to call you out, cut the bullshit, and make people answer questions. So I don't think we've seen a reckoning yet for the president to know truly which side he's on. But I, su- I suspect President Jorge Gonzalez is going to be a really good guy. And I feel like it's just his reliance on Peter as chief of staff and the nefarious things Peter's doing. I mean, he essentially calls in the Russians. Like, literally, he calls his, his asset in, in Russia to kill and threaten our military personnel on the ground from rescuing right. the ranger. Right, And he does it purely that for was politics. Crazy. Right. He, he doesn't want the, inter, the election, the interference with the election with an op gone wrong in Syria. He even wants to cover up, you know, CIA service members' deaths and this tragedy you know, anything to not put us deeper into the Syrian conflict, even if going deeper in means saving our people and saving, you know, innocent life. Peter doesn't want to do it because he wants his candidate reelected. So I think he's the bad apple in the bunch. I don't think it it got to the core of everybody yet. I don't think it's totally rotted out Jorge Gonzalez and his administration. And to be honest, every bad thing we were told to believe about Beverly in charge of the CIA I don't think I trust it all because it was coming from Peter. No, I don't either. And so I actually, I, I think she could have an Irene Kennedy moment or at least a, she's genuine and actually really good at her job. It's just, we've only been sh- shown the bad things. So I, th- I think there's a redemption arc for her and I, I'll turn the question on you and hear from you, but I, I do want your response to this. And this is the final piece of evidence why I think president Jorge will be, on the right side of history here, because here's how he's described, quote, the son of Mexican immigrants, the president did not have an impressive political pedigree that was tied to generations of family wealth. But what he did have was charisma, a work ethic second to none, and a general sunny disposition, a rare quality among professional politicians. I mean, he was even described as like a Reagan, able to reach out across the aisle, but also a no-nonsense kind of guy. So... I think, as it says, an anemic economy, troubles in Iraq, a spiraling conflict in Syria, and now a traitorous chief of staff. I think the deck was kind of stacked against the president here, but the president standing on his own, I think eventually will come to love. Yeah, no, I, I, I saw that that too. And I think what's interesting is like like we said at the beginning, even though we're in like a third person, we're almost like colored by Peter's as as we're we're seeing it not as third person but more as like a first person through peter's eyes and we're yes. getting some narrative bias through peter you know, because he's the one who who is describing you know in the in-between dialogue he's he's describing the president he's the one describing beverly we never get in into their their heads so we're only getting his dis- disposition and you know when it came time to it she made the right call she said i think you should go in so I, there's obviously some political mover, maneuvering, and I, I like I like this aspect. I, I this is something that's in every Mitch Rap novel, and 
I could see how he's going to play up on these characters and you know bring it in. I was also intrigued by the the Charles character, the the yeah. rogue CIA station chief operative. I think, yeah. and we we didn't get very much clarification on him. And I thought that was an interesting twist. Most of the time with these novels, we're not left with so many loose ends. We, I felt like there was a lot of cliffhangers. Normally, there's like one cliffhanger, you know. Agreed, yeah. Think of Spymaster, you know. Scott loses literally his entire family. Right. You know, his mentor, his wife, and he gets captured. Like, all right, that's it. But here, we're not only left with what the hell was Charles doing with the Syrian commander who claimed to have been, you know, knew about him, knew about Frodo, like was sent to essentially kill Mad Drake. Right. We, you know, was Peter involved with this? How what was Beverly involved with this somehow? Like, w- there's just a lot of little mini trails. Well, that, that French were, dude or Belgian dude or whatever embedded with r- the series. Oh, yeah. The, um, who is he? The uh, Mr. Suave. Who Swaff. is Mr. Suave? How did, how did he know Matt Drake's name? Right. You know? There's bigger fish here. Exactly, exactly. So I thought that that was, and I was kind of like, oh, this is cool. Like, you know, when you watch like a movie or, you know, there's there's a lot of little things or like, not not, not maybe not necessarily a movie, but like a season of TV, mm-hmm. there's normally like multiple threads that they can then pull on on the next season. And I felt like this book left me with more of those than traditional books in yeah. the genre have, have left me with, so... 100% agree with that. Yeah, this book really made me want the second one. And and I'll be honest, for a book that I really enjoyed, I really, really liked, it did enough to want me to continue and finish the series, but those cliffhangers are definitely like the closer. It not only did enough, it sure. really made me want the second one. You know, some books are so good, you absolutely have to get the second one. This one was so good and intrigued the hell out of you in the last chapter, you know, in the final pages needing to know what's going on here. So, it, it, yeah, I really like that take as well. We talked a bit about the bad guys. Let me ask you, what do you think about two really awesome characters, candidates for our winner section on the scorecard later, James Glass and Frodo? What did you think about the good guys on Matt Drake's team? Dude, so Frodo is awesome. Probably my favorite character in the book. So um, very sad he, I mean, he's a fictional character, but still very sad that he, you know, targeted in that attack, lost his ability, lost his arm. Obviously, his legs are messed up, but just, you know, reminded me, like, kind of, again, to parallel this with, with Mitch Rapp, but was like as if Marcus Dumond right. wasn't just a brainiac guy, but if right. Marcus Dumond wa- was Scott an operative, Coleman. <laughs> you know, Scott Coleman and Marcus Dumond, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, if you merge those two together, that is Frodo. It's kinda. perfect. Uh, you know, throw in like a missing, you know, like a, a battlefield, you know, scene gone wrong, and you, you have you have your person. So that, that was cool. It's incredible. And Glass, while while we didn't get a lot of him. We got like the seating of, of him where like, I want more of Glass. I think yes. he's going to be an intricate, I could see him being, or I, at least I hope, him being an intricate character going all along in this series, kind of like your Stan Hurley's. Exactly. Or Gary Lawler. Your um, Gary Lawler. Yeah, like that that kind of mentor figure for, I mean, he does say that he only knew Madre for five years, but right. still he he had that 
don't know, he reminded me of like J.K. Simmons, like the character that like J.K. Simmons plays in like all these novel, all these uh, movies, you know, like that guy. Hundred uh, percent. Yeah, I, yeah, I, no, de- I love these guys. Definitely, Frodo is is is. If he's not your winner, he's you know he's got to be your winner. Oh, yeah, and then that also compounded the personal demons Drake is dealing with because while not directly responsible for Frodo, he felt responsible. And now right. having to go through this, being in the field without your backup, without your wingman, you know, without that overwatch from your buddy who always had your back and you guys are operating thousands of miles apart. And, you know, the comms are shaky in and out here and there. He, when he can talk to him, you just see that bond come through. I, I absolutely love the, the dialogue between the two of them. And we are in Matt Drake's head a lot. And the first, so I think that's one benefit of first person. Another one I'm going to talk about in a little bit, but one of the main benefits is every time he talks to Frodo, that conversation is so much deeper because you're not only getting to hear what he says about his friend, but you get to see and hear what he's thinking about his friend. Right. The dialogue isn't the only way to access their relationship. And that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant there. That's that's the benefit of first person. Yes. Right. You know, because a lot of times we'll get the dialogue and, you know, maybe the, the narrator or the in-betweens can give like a little bit of introspective. Right. But here we're getting and like you said, th- those conversations with Matt with Matt and Frodo, you know, he's he's saying what what is almost sometimes unwritten. And I, I like that a lot. And yeah. No, perfect. That is what at the beginning of the novel I wasn't a huge fan of first person, but I think I am like I think I still prefer third, but there are some benefits to first. Yeah. And and I got another big one we'll talk about towards the end. It, it's perhaps my favorite not my favorite scene of the book, my, but my favorite written excerpt uh passage from the book and it's a soliloquy totally in Matt Drake's head. And, and it's just first person is the vehicle to, to let that kind of writing be as good as it is. One okay. last thing on glass. Uh, actually, two last things on glass. The little details just make this book pure entertainment through and through. The coasters in his office. <laughs> you know this dude is just like, he's like the, he's like the Stan Hurley. I, there's no other way to put it. He's got coasters of exactly all the bad guys that he's been involved in ops on to kill. And they're all pictures of these guys post-op. So it's like, it's Hussein after his hanging, or it's like Osama bin Laden after getting popped in the face. And he puts them on coasters because, and I quote, necklaces made from ears were not in vogue. So he settled for coasters. <laughs> what? That's awesome. That that makes me think of that bar that Brad Thor wrote about, which had all the mementos uh, by all the seals from all their kills. They were like, you know, right? Oh, in Virginia Beach, yeah, yeah. yeah. Don writes that, and it, it's it's so like strange and weird. It it has to be true, right? Like, the fact that there's someone out there that has these coasters, you know, yeah. it's like you know something that he put in there. But yeah, and one other tidbit on glass. I mean, just again. So many gems. You know, when I'm pulling all these quotes, it's because there were so many. He's just dropping dimes. There's so many of them. And this one's quote. To say James Glass is an intimidating figure is a bit like saying Bill Clinton liked women. Sometimes words just weren't (laughs) enough. (laughs) 
talk talk about uh, Mitch Rapp so, and the humor. Like that just proves to me Don Bentley's gonna bring it. The Kyle Mills Mitch Rapp dark humor. He's gonna bring it. No, that there was definitely some some humor in here. You know, like not only with uh, Matt's like quippy some of his quips that he says to people, Frodo, or even like some of the terrorists, yep. but just you know some some of the things that uh, that Don puts in other characters was, was just was just funny. So yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, do you want you want to just dive into the scorecard and talk about some of the stuff? Yeah, while giving it a score. No, I like that. I think that's a good way to do it. Will also allow us to get into the action because we haven't really talked action writing too much yet. But we are in characters, right? So just right before we we depart from good guys, bad guys talk. What did you think about some of the side characters, particularly the locals? There's Zane, who was a weapons dealer, who picks him up at the airport as they're escaping. You know that shootout from, you know that the plane landing. And then there's another one, the ISIS kid, the American from Chicago, turned extremist, abandoned everything, abandoned his mom, went to go fight for ISIS, but is now questioning things. And the reason I want to ask you about these two and bring them up, I feel like the topic of extremism and Islamic fundamentalism and any sort of fundamentalism is handled real well and the embrace of culture Mm. is handled real well. And it was so refreshing because after some some criticisms we've had of Brad Thor, you know, <laughs> we don't hold our punches here. If we say something, it's got to be said. It's how we feel. I really appreciated Don's respect for the cultural attitudes of the people and places where the story's happening and the motivations of the individuals, not the motivations of the group like ISIS. Obviously, he nails that and, and you know, they're all scumbags. But he gets into that personal level to say, but they all didn't choose this life or they all, some of them might regret that life. And it doesn't define the culture of the entire country, even if those veins of extremism are currently ruling the area, it doesn't define the cultural attitudes of the people in those areas. And I thought he did that really well with a lot of side characters and particularly with the very end, which is Drake goes to see the mom of this kid and says, He wanted to come home to you. Like, I just wanted to tell you, ma'am, I'm not here to interrogate you or anything. I want to tell you, your son regretted what he did and he was going to come home. And uh, I was there with him at the very end and he he wanted to come back to you. Like, I feel like that was so personable and we haven't seen that in a couple of novels we've read. I feel like Vince did it sometimes with his side characters and I'm really glad to see Don doing that with his side characters here. Yeah, and I think there's just appreciation across the board to try to tell you know, the whole story of what Syria is. We, we even get, I forget if it's Don or Matt or if it's just whoever describing, you know, just laying out the facts of what's going on over there. And I, I, I found it interesting because we, we haven't really dealt with a novel in this theater, you know, trying to understand how you have all these, you know, multiple proxy wars going on. You have the Assad government that, you know, may or may not want the... <laughs> insurgency to happen because it allows them to continue you know to to attack and and assert his power you know if if he had peace would he would he still be in power that was you know there was a lot of interesting things to think about like in terms of like uh introspection on like the whole civil war that's going on there that don sort of places in there without like being too overly overt uh and in your face about what his opinion is more so like this is what this is what it is, and you can think of it either way. 
But yeah, no, I liked his attention to detail of these side characters, and, and particularly, I forget his name. You said it, um, Zane, the guy who helps Matt Zane. There's a point where Matt says, "You know, I'm going to need your, you know, something might not happen, or, or something. We, we don't, we're not going to have this, and I understand if you don't want to do it." And Zane just slams the brakes, yep. and he says, "Who the fuck do you think I am?" Essentially, like I'm going to run at the first sense of, you know, I'm. Not only am I your asset, I am your friend. And I, I yep. you know, there are people out there who are, are, you know, this is their life. They're dated every day. Yep. But they're still loyal. They still have a moral compass, you know, like they're, but I liked how he also paralleled this with Einstein. Right. Piece yeah. of shit scumbag. Right. Absolutely. Who, you know, also a quote unquote asset, but, you know, just, Calls to the highest bidder. Exactly. Has no problem in, in experimenting on women, children, and and the elderly. So you you get a, you get a lot of parallels in this in this novel. You you really do. And yeah. you, the the um, Mr. Suave, he is not a jihadi. Right. He, he calls himself a business businessman. Right. He, whatever is good for business. That's what he's there for. So, right. you know, whether it be selling chemical weapons, selling drugs, selling military power, he, yeah. war feeds that. So yeah. he's going to be there to to sell it. He's an opportunist. It's, it's interesting these these different, you know, characters we get. Not only the political guys, but the in Syria natives. It's like Lord of War. Was that the Nicolas Cage movie? You know, he's an opportunist. Yeah. yeah. That was good. Yeah, you're right. It's not just the natives, not just the locals who are playing both sides or being manipulative. It's it's this European guy, and we don't even know what his deal is. But uh, it could right. be anybody. It's everybody. I feel like it's he, the Russians. He's going to come up later. Right, right. He has. It's the Russians too. It's it's everybody. I mean, so yeah, you started with just saying that Don has such a great grip on the political landscape that is Syria and what a, what a smart play to put this book there. You know, you could have made this Afghanistan, you could have made it Iraq and it would have just seemed like, shouldn't have this have been published 10 years earlier? You know, like why didn't this come out in 2007, 2008, if that's what you're going to do. And so for 2020 it made sense, this country in disarray. And here's how well uh, Don understands this. He writes, quote, the legion of policy analysts and think tank fellows who had tried to understand Syria's religious fault lines and tribal intricacies had completely missed the point. At their core, people craved stability and safety, and ISIS offered both in spades, provided, of course, that you subscribe to their malignant form of apocalyptic Islam. Nobody's perfect. I feel like he's recognizing, you know, it's like the drug gangs in like Brazil or Colombia or something. You got to recognize there's a community that's in need, and as soon as a strong man's going to offer stability and safety, as Don says, the community may actually want them or need them. It's not because they agree with their views. It's not because long-term they think this is what's best for the country and the world. They don't want to bring Sharia law to everybody and destroy America, the evil Satan. No, just like the, the drug lords and, lords and the gangs, they're going to bring some stability and they're going to, they're going to watch out for the kids on the street if they know your family. You know, they're going to be the only ones bringing them gifts you know, at Christmas time, you know, whatever it is, right? They're going to be the only ones on call if, if you are getting attacked. Their, their aims might not be good. Their worldview may not be good. What they're doing may not be good. What they could do for you and your community, you might need them at that moment in time and place. And I think separating that out from everybody's just a bad guy who agrees with ISIS, 
versus some people under ISIS's protection are getting more stability than they had under the government forces is a reality to be reckoned with. And Don's able to, to call that out, put a name to it, and, and put it in his books. And I really appreciate that take. Yeah, no, I agree. Scorecard? We could talk some action. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I, I thought the action was some of the best I've, I've read. Like just the writing of it, and you could tell, you could tell he's been in like these sort of theaters, like maybe not necessarily the DIA case officer, the special operators, the Army Rangers, but you know he's he's experienced, or he's at least he's done super extensive research talking to his buddies about these very things, and he has the respect for it. And I think you know one of my favorite, might not even call it an action scene, but the the whole hey ho jump. Yes. From starting from pre pre mission, you know, checks to execution to, you know, ultimately having to escape a, Ru- a Russian helicopter. Like that whole scene was so gripping to me. Yes. Like uh, that was, that was my favorite part of the entire novel. It was a near perfect action sequence. I mean, it, that reminds me of like Vince Flynn's term limits helicopter scene on the Potomac or, right. you know, some of, uh, uh, Brad Thor's like iconic action sequences skiing down the slopes. It had that same from lions. It had that same level of buy-in from me that was not forced in any way. I I was just absolutely gripped. It's like that pinnacle in a movie, like a bond movie when it hits that stride of you can't look away. It, the book hit that stride at the exact right time when it needed that. And to be honest, that also kept up from, from that scene forward you were on your toes the whole time, you know, because soon thereafter he he gets captured eventually, right? Uh, he's in prison with Shaw. A whole lot happens there. So it's almost as if that scene was awesome on its own, but it was awesome in terms of how it led to the entire final action sequence of the book that sustained for, what, 200 pages or something. It was awesome. Right. And then there was also... A really cool action sequence which didn't which didn't have to do with Matt Drake, but it definitely gave weight to what Peter, the chief of staff, did by tipping off the Russians and was a recall to that Russian helicopter, you know, brought it full circle. When there was that showdown, the QRF team that Frodo and Glass got to be authorized to save Shaw because the beacon was embedded and we, we knew rough, roughly where these guys were. We were going to send in the cavalry, but then that Russian fighter pilot, you know, he fires a warning shot and it's like, turn around. Honestly, you could fault that captain or that pilot, whoever he was for, for turning it around. You could say he succumbed to, to the Russian aggression, but I think he was playing the long game. He's like, if we get shot down here, we're going to have unleashed a whole sequence of events that we have no way of winning. You know, we were shot down by a Russian that looks bad. We were the ones, the aggressor, going into their airspace. They had the right to do it. There's no way we went on top of this, and we'd have to have a retaliatory strike. So I think him turning around was as disappointing as it was. It was the right play because there was no good answer in that situation, and the only good answer is think long-term and come up with your next move. And then the counter move was even better, that we would bomb the shit out of their runways so they can't even launch anything anymore, that they'd be entirely crippled. And so we put the, you know, we put the... uh the trigger back on them. I thought it was a really brilliant scene. Almost like that felt very Clancy-esque that 
yes. war games, the war games back and forth, you know, whether it's planes or helicopters, it felt very, very clancy. Yeah. And you brought it up earlier. This, this whole idea of like the top gunness of those scenes was freaking awesome. Oh, yeah. Just the attention to detail of describing, you know, not only the the Russian warplanes and, and the American helicopters, but, you know, when once we get involved with the Raptors and, you know, getting a little bit of introspection of not only the Russian pilot, but the American pilot and what briefly what they stand for. You know, I was just here for it. And like, you know, the little descriptions, you could tell he did his research about. Yeah. You know, the little, little, like the blip of radar when the weapon system opens up and like, that's the only thing. Yeah. Um, he was know, a like, pilot, I, you know, he was a patchy pilot. Yeah. Those kind of things were cool. And like, they weren't overly technical. Like some of the things we've read, right. right. They added to the story. It was, you know, sort of woven in a little bit. I, I like that. The, the, the yeah. last, I don't know, freaking two thirds of this book is pretty much just <laughs> jam packed action. Uh, so I don't know. It gets a pretty high action score for me. I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna do a nine. Yeah, that's what I was gonna do too. I mean I could maybe do eight for the first couple of chapters, not having that initial gotcha action scene that, that captures your attention, but it more than makes up for it. So I think I'm going nine. Yeah, but I was thinking about that. Like we get the, like the little bit of action at the at the airport where he's being taken down. That's we get true. a little bit of like the opening scene is like you know, his asset is, you know, sort of trying to figure out, you know, send the signal, that kind That's of a stuff. That's a great point. You're right. So. I'll agree. Now, what about the overall plot? There, we haven't, I, I, I wanted to be positive about this, but there are a little things as I was getting towards the end of the novel. And this is what I said, like, first novels sometimes can be jam-packed. And the mm-hmm. author just tries to jam in everything there because who knows when they're going to get to write again. Right. There was a, a couple coincidences that I'm going to ding the plot on a little bit. The whole idea that the only reason, like, did you buy the only reason that Einstein Peter was trying to, oh, well, no. I'm going to get to that, but like the mm-hmm. Peter aspect of it, like, do you really think there's someone out there that would stop this just to save, to win an election? Is that, is that true? I think that was a little more viable. Yeah, for me, for me, that okay. wasn't that right. wasn't the big faux pas. I, I think for me that that was almost I could buy into that. That was very much like a uh, Vince Flynn. What's his name? House of Cards. Uh, Hank Hank Clark or House of Cards move. Or, Hank Clark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I actually think there are some people who want to play politics and just say, "Look, if we can cover up some service members' deaths, if we can get an op to go wrong, if you know, even." Jack Carr, right? That's terminalist stuff. They're trying to cover up the experimental drug by essentially walking our guys into a trap. Um, Yeah, I I think it works as a literary device, and I also do buy it, I'm sure, on some level. Maybe not this stark, but on some level, the election supersedes everything, and public image, you know, supersedes everything, even commitment to the troops. So I bought that. I bought that. You had a gripe with that a little bit? That that was like the beginning, but... You said it. The, the whole it didn't need the chemical weapon right. story right. at all. <laughs> it really yeah. didn't. Yeah, what was supposed to be? It the was big sort of reveal. weaved in there. Yeah, the big reveal that the weapon was used on Drake, and that was why he's having the tremors and and this PTSD is because his brain is slowly being kind of manipulated by this chemical agent. 
but it didn't quite take hold in him. It was it was a failure on Einstein's part in the early research is was why Matt Drake is still alive. Okay, and then that ended up being the reason because I was I was wondering why Einstein only wanted to see Matt Drake. I thought that was very true. Tenuous. I was wondering that. Yeah. Right. And I and I was willing to brush it off as I believe the relationship between a handler and an asset is sacred. And like if that's the face that first reach out to you, that's the only person. You're not going to trust a single person. And even handoffs, right? You hear in a lot of these Cold War era times, a handler would have to pass off their agent to a new handler and it'd be really rocky. You know, like to get them to get them bought into that new handler, even if they're validating it for you it was very hesitant. The agent would often not, they'd only want to deal with that person. So I kind of was willing to forgive that. But then when it's revealed at the end that Einstein only wanted to talk to Drake because he wanted to get progress on his failed experiment and and try to find out what went wrong. And he was still kind of actually running Drake, right? By wanting to analyze him and experiment on him still. I'm like, yeah, maybe the weakest link of this book. No, that you're right. It, it's the weakest link of the book, but it it didn't bring it down for me too much. Like yeah. it, I kind of just like, all right, well, I didn't like that, so I just I brushed it aside and and moved on. It's not egregious, yeah. Like I said, I, I don't even think you needed Einstein to necessarily be a chemical, you know, a, a chemist. Like you, you could have just had him be an asset that only want to talk to Drake and he turned, you know, like th- that kind of situation. Yeah. You know, I think like, like that was, and then did you, what did you think of the end scene where Frodo <laughs> goes into the president and essentially blackmails him? Yeah. And the president even like gets mad at him and says like, you, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. You think that you would have to, you, you'd have to blackmail this administration. Yeah. Um, that was like a, a lot. Like, do you think like that would actually ever happen? Like Glass and Frodo being able to allow get audience in the Situation Room and and, and demand this blackmail the president? A a little forced. I think I'll agree with you. I again, first book. I'm glad we're jumping right into a White House, you know, Situation Room, uh, Oval Office kind of discussions. But I think to get that right, your research, your dialogue has to be so on point and. I think he played a little hard and fast, a little loose and goosey here. Uh, you know, who can say what, who's running their mouth, how's the president going to respond? I think that's, again, another part of the book that I would like to see tightened up. I mean, you could learn a lot from reading Vince Flynn's White House scenes or Capitol Hill scenes. Right. And I I think Don, as, his, as an early writer here, could definitely benefit from tweaking that dialogue a little bit and the access to the president a little more. Maybe like one more character like the secretary who's right outside the Oval Office door who, you know, tries to stop them, but James Glass busts in anyway, you know, instead of them just showing up happenstance, you know, I'm here, right. surprise. Right. Um, you know, you flesh it out a little bit. Yeah. No, that, that was like little, little things. You know, we have to, have to be, give the full picture, get, you know, give a little bit of nitty gritty, even though, you know, really like this. But so for all that, I'd probably give the plot I don't know, eight, eight point five. Yeah, like it's still very good. Yeah, I was hovering between a seven and an eight. I, I think it deserves that eight. I really do. Smash yeah. that eight. 
I think buy-in, we, we've already said it. Uh, again, we've said this many times. If we're talking action in that second half of the novel, five out of five all day long, buy-in on a couple of these other storylines that aren't woven in so well, maybe a little lower. Buy-in in the beginning where I'm trying to figure out who's Layla, his wife, why can't he see her face, and who's Jeremiah, the shoe shiner, and what are they talking about? You know, just the opening didn't totally get me the way I'd want, so I, I between a three and a four, I think a three is disingenuous. Uh, I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt with a four for the yeah, action. I'm going to do the same, just for the action. Yeah, for the like the buy-in of the act, like the believability of the action, just yeah. elevates it. So now the believability of the bad guys, uh, not so much. I mean, the the whole Charles character knowing Peter and then them having a contact with the Russians. Okay, I, I didn't buy into Peter. All that much, up, so I'm I am going to go to three on the bad guys. That's going to be my slightly lower one. Today. Okay, okay. I kind of like this like Einstein character in terms of mm. I, I like the duplicity of of him. You know, even though like he didn't really need to be a chemist, but like this idea that there are these guys who are willing you know, scumbags willing to play either game, and then you mm -hmm. juxtapose against that with his other his other asset that he had. I, I like that you know sort of comparison. You know, both of them in this theater of operation. I was intrigued by the the the, the suave man. Um, we're calling him uh, Mr. Suave, Rico Suave. Yeah, you know, he's Rico Suave. He's he's kind of a bad guy, but we we didn't get like too much of him to like really understand his motives. And I do think that Charles and Peter, it, it's at least setting up for them to be like the big bads on the political side going forward. It, you know, way more so than what we saw in this novel. So for that. You know, I'm, I'm going to give it like a 3.5. I'm a little higher than yep. you. Yeah, I think that's fair. Good guys. Frodo, Glass, Drake. Right there. That's the tag team. That's the trio I want to see. You throw in these side characters, five out of five on the good guys. Yeah, I mean. You joining you, me? You said it. You joining me? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm joining with the five. Like, uh, I love Matt Drake. I, I think he's an awesome protagonist. And the side characters that we got. Frodo, we, even like even some of like the little operators, like the, the Night Stalker pilot, yes. um, General Fritz or Colonel the Fritz, the yeah, the, the the ranger that helps him out. Yep, the, these little attention to detail with those military operatives was was really nice. Yep. Setting. Syria was cool, man. It really was. I was in that prison. I was in that little hut trying to jumpstart that tractor or, the, or that car, or the flat tire, and getting fired upon by the helicopter. I was in the cockpit of the fighter pilots. I don't think I have any other choice but to go five. I mean, maybe a four and a half. Uh, but I, I, I'm going to like – I like round numbers today, so I'm, I'm going five on the setting. All right, all right. I'm, I'm going to go four. And, and mainly because we I, – I would like to like a little bit more description – of like the the theater of Syria, like and like what's going on around that, but like the individual setting description of where we were at, you know, in that hut, in the airplane, on the way to Syria, was really good. And I think the way he describes his surroundings within the novel was very good. But I would have liked a little bit more retrospection of. I, I guess we got it yeah. a little bit, but you know, almost like the apostle. Yeah, it's very, it's, yeah, yeah. The Apostle, I feel like we were so 
hardcore on those ops. You're feeling every bump, you know, in the Jeep, in the convoy. Yeah, I felt Afghanistan more than I than I felt Syria in this. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah. I I liked it how it was a new a new aspect to it. You know, yeah, like well, a new thing, like a, a new a new theater of operation. So, yeah, maybe on the ground in Syria, while I I, I was there generally or vaguely, maybe the nitty gritty, the sight, the smell, the touch, you know, wasn't fully there. And then, you know what? I might backtrack here. I felt like the White House wasn't done all that well. I I don't really mm. know what uh, Jorge Gonzalez White House looks and feels like. We were in a couple of meetings, sure, but there wasn't much about you know, what portraits are on the wall. What do they indicate about Jorge's presidency and the administration? What changes were made to the building? The way Kyle, man, when he had uh, the cooks come in, he made it all modern, using glass, removing a lot of the marble, white, like traditional stuff. I feel like the White House wasn't done justice. I'm gonna go it's to those attention to details that you know, sort of rounds out who, the, you know, it signals like without saying it, who the president is and like that, the fact that he's that kind of person that would do that, you know, we now understand that character better. So yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Like there, it, there's room for improvement, but very good start. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I'm going to a four on setting cover. Chris, tell me what you think of the metric and this co- and this series keeps up through all four of, Matt Drake books. What it do you does. think about the design? It does. Dude, I'm I'm going like a solid four. Like it's it's a you know, we get one cover that's either black or you know, this reddish with was that like a broken down building in the background or, or something as as a secondary not, um cover. I guess that would be the paperback, maybe. I you know, normally typically I don't like a man, uh, you know, a man's face on, <laughs> right. on my cover. I, for some reason, I don't mind this. Maybe it's because I just don't have that. I don't have that much of a stake in in the series yet, so yeah. I, I haven't envisioned like who Madrick is. So I'm I'm okay with them telling me, all right, this is what they think Madrick is like. But I like the attention. I like the without sanction, the the sort of angled uh, lettering and, and and how it's placed. I don't know. Just and this guy looks super beaten. And and Madrake goes through the freaking ringer through, right. <laughs> through the course of this novel, oh, so yeah. I I like that aspect of it. So, yeah, uh, I'm with you. I, I love the texts. The diagonal is very unique. It puts a stamp on you know the trademarks. This is going to be it's it's its own series. I'm I agree. I'm gonna say I give my stamp of approval to the face here and the man, the body. It, traditionally, our listeners will know we don't like seeing the main character as an actual embodied person on the cover, particularly seeing their face. But I think it's so artistically done here with the shadows. I, I love the lighting on it and the fact that you don't have anything else. I think my problem with faces and bodies is when they're dropped into what's a really cool or dramatic scene in terms of the props right. or the landscape. Then you just tack this body on and it becomes super tacky. But here, that's all there is. It's honestly just a black backdrop. So I'm okay. I, you can forgive the whole face thing instead of you just blending it in or putting it in the corner or having a little guy standing here. No, you're just going whole hog, filling the, the a blank black space with this rough and tumble, torn and battered dude. And I think it screams Matt Drake to me. So sometimes I look at a picture like the Jack Carr stuff and I'm like, that don't scream 
James Reese to me. Like, who's this guy on the cover? But right here, th- that's screaming Matt Drake to me, and, and I'm for it. I love the simplicity of it. I think it matches the simplicity of the storytelling. I'm going five out of five. Yeah, very true. I think it's bold. I All like right. it. All right. All right, give me your winner, Mike. So I actually want to hear your winner first because I have a slightly unique one, and uh, I'm hoping there's someone or something that gets said in the winner section since I'm going to pick something slightly different to to round us out here. I'm curious to hear yours first. You know, I was going to pick Don Bentley as my winner. Okay. Like, I think this is a pretty awesome first novel coming out in the pandemic. Like, the fact that you're able to, you know, this is one of the better first novels we've read. And now he's going to be given the task of taking over this you know, hefty weight of the series. Like, uh, so I'm, I'm going to say he, he did a good job here and he, you know, deserves it. So I'm going to give, I'm going to give Don my, my free space this week. You know, I love that. And, and my free space is going to play right into that with Don's writing is so powerful and he proves that in one of the last chapters, and I wanted to read this soliloquy inside of Matt Drake's head because it's the moment he builds up the courage to smash Syed's face and then bite his ear off and, you know, take him down right before the final rescue scene. It's when he exercises his demons, and more importantly, it's when he forgives himself. And the writing is so deep and pulls everything together. And the fact that he chose to do first person, this passage proves... It absolutely proves why that can work, why it should work, and why it's his stamp on the Thrillerverse. So I want to read this amazing monologue passage. Shaw and I were going to die, and there was nothing I could do about it. The sobering thought brought with it memories of the last time I faced death. Then, Frodo had been by my side, one arm gone, a leg mangled, and nearly delirious with pain. Like most in my chosen profession, I didn't dwell on death but it was never far from my thoughts. I'd been to too many funerals, seen the flag folded and handed to too many grieving spouses to think I was invincible. Scores of men who were better operators than I'd ever be now slept with Arlington National Cemetery's eternal embrace. I didn't live a charmed life, but I had imagined that when death finally came for me, I'd be facing it with Frodo at my side. For the briefest of moments, I thought about Layla, how seeing her across the room still made my heart skip, how her skin smelled like lilacs, the snorting noise she made when she laughed, and the way her nose wrinkled and her green eyes flashed when she was angry. She deserved better than this, better than me. She deserved someone to grow old with, someone to rock her babies to sleep at night, someone to coach their little league teams. She deserved someone safe, maybe a high school teacher or an engineer or a lawyer, someone who wasn't me. I wasn't safe, normal, or even completely whole. I wasn't the man she'd grow old with. I'd never hold her hand tightly in mine as she brought our children into the world. No, I'd never be or do any of those things. But I was still a ranger. Even in my darkest hour, I was bound by something bigger than myself. The Ranger Creed. Chris, that's that a was de- awesome. That's that was a awesome debut writing. novel. That's a debut novel. And he's writing like that. Yeah, no, that's um, that's why I gotta give it to give it to Don. Like, some of the writing in this novel is just it's it's a plus plus. It's top it's, class. It's so good. It's top class. It's best of the best in the genre. Like that's up there with some of my favorite Vince Flynn passages, the epilogue to Consent to Kill. Some of the amazing Jack Carr things, like when James Reese is in Siberia as the ghost, you know, in the woods, and Don Bentley's doing that right here to close out his first Matt Drake book ever. 
absolutely brilliant. Hats off to you. Glad to have you taking over the Mitch Rap series, my friend. Yep, yeah. All right, so that leaves me with a 42.5 and you with a 43. That's two pretty good scores. It's a good scores. Very good scores. Good scores. Yeah, dude, I'm I'm excited. I I really think we should read the next couple books in this, you know, fin- finish the four books before we get at least before we get his his first one, which we have some time considering yep. we haven't even gotten Kyle's last book. Want to give that one due justice, due um appreciation before yes. we, you know, fully switch to Don. But yeah, I think, you know, in the months to come, we're going to be doing more of these novels. I want to I want more metric in my life, so Absolutely. With writing like that, I want more Don Bentley in my life too. Yeah. All right. So, you know, on this feed, not quite sure what, what's coming next to you. We, we need to work on our schedule, but still going to be active. Go over and check out the Mitra podcast where we're going to do a little bit more on this book. I think there's, we, we try to contain ourselves. There, there was a lot of comparisons that, that I, both me and Mike could have brought up in terms of, you know, where we see, where we think we see Don go, could go with the, the Mitch Rapp universe. I mean, he, he could decide to go in a completely opposite direction, but I think there are some pretty obvious things that we could, he could pull from this novel. Um, and so we want to, we want to get those down in a pod. So go check that out. That'll be on the Midtrap podcast, No Limits feed in the next week or two. And of course we are still chugging along in our season two of Midtrap pod on the Scott Harvath podcast. Our next Scott Harvath novel is the Athena project. Yeah. Athena project and then full black. Yeah. So it's, uh, actually, the one time, one year when Brad released two books in one year. Could you imagine getting two Brad Thor novels in the same Oof. year? That'd be awesome. Man. Yeah, so we get the little uh, side story with the Athena girls, Athena women, um, and Full Black. You know what else we might have to do? A, we might have to cover the excerpt from Deadfall. Don't forget, we got a Scott Harveth novel in Ukraine coming out. And I think a little bit of it was released earlier today. So we, we got to jump on that too. Did you read it? I, I didn't get to read it, so I wasn't going to bring it up. But yeah, I meant to mention that to you that we, we probably should do a little preview pod talking Absolutely. about the, the excerpt from Deadfall. So, because yep. that is coming out in July. So, pretty soon. Dude, so soon. And I think in June, do we get in our next Jack Carnival? I think only the dead is June. And then we got September with uh, Code Red. <laughs> Dude. And we also. We also have we st- we already have it. I haven't read it yet because I've been so busy. But the the next Chris Howdy novel, which comes out in May, we have that one as well to read. So that's right. That's some right. Haley Chill back in our life. Oh, so that's probably the next one here on Thriller Podcast. Is the next Chris Howdy book? Oh, that's exciting. Appreciate you reminding me of that. Oh, and we have a signed copy of the Athena Project. So next month when we cover that on Scott Harveth podcast we got a brad thor signed athena project and eventually a full black signed copy and a spy master signed copy so i don't know about you but those are three of the top books i would want signed by brad thor and we're going to be giving them away to our patrons so if you haven't heard about our patreon we have the best group of supporters who for the price of less than a novel a month help support this podcast and they're the reasons we are able to make more podcasts 
So just head to thrillerpod.com, click the Patreon tab to learn more. You can get access to our group chat where Chris and I are always chatting it up with our patrons, talking about what we're reading, life events, or even sporting events. Uh, Chris and I were just talking both EPL and uh, NHL playoffs. So you can have access to Chris and I anytime you want on the group chat and uh, tell us what you're reading. So thrillerpod.com, click on Patreon to join us over there. Yep, yep. And you're right. So the next next time you hear us on the No Limits Thriller Podcast, we will be covering The Devil You Know by Chris Howdy, book number five. Well, four and a half, I guess. Because <laughs> Insurrection Day is like a half novel. Right, right. Great novella. All right. So with that, we need to thank our patrons. Our special operator, Sherry F., our special agents, Daryl, Kevin, George, Matt, Dawn, Dennis, Peggy, Catherine, Ray, Bridget, Jeff, and Mark. Please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can find us at ThrillerPodcast.com or on Twitter and Instagram at ThrillerPodcast. And, you know, there were so many good novels. Like, I, you know, I could do Just Let Drake Be Drake, Just Let Matt Be Matt. What is what's the ranger one? Rangers lead the way. You could have done you could have done a multitude of little quips, little quotes from this novel. It was it was amazing. So I don't know which one should I choose, Mike. Don Bentley leads the way. This is the way. Don Bentley leads the way. Just let Don be Don. <laughs>